June, well, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. June is Pride Month, and although we've made significant strides in securing civil rights for the LGBTQ community in this country, that's not always the case in other parts of the world where persecution continues to exist. A new documentary called Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America, points out that in 70 countries, it's illegal to be gay, lesbian, or transgender, and in some of them, it's even punishable by death. The film follows gay people from the Middle East and Africa as they come to the United States seeking asylum. And it'll air on World Channel via local PBS stations this Sunday, June 28th, and on worldchannel.org from the 28th to July 12th. I'm very pleased to welcome the film's director, Tom Shepard, to our show now, along with two of his subjects, Melanie Nathan and Cheyenne Adriano. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having Hi, us, Leonard. Thanks for having us. Tom, Thank how you did so you... much for having us. Oh, my pleasure. I think this is a really important film. Tom, how did you become aware of this issue? So it was 2014, and I was um, working as a volunteer at a refugee resettlement organization in Northern California, Jewish Family and Community Services. And at that time, Leonard, um, you know, LGBTQ rights certainly in the United States, was accelerating very quickly. The marriage equality was kind of steamrolling its way to the Supreme Court and, and also in most other Western countries. But if you looked at certain parts of the world, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, you know, you were hearing stories of gay men being thrown off of buildings. You were hearing stories of, you know, lesbian corrective rape. And I, was, I live in San Francisco. I'm a gay man myself. And I was looking around at my community and really feeling some complacency. And so wondering if we might be able to, you know, follow folks as they were arriving kind of longitudinally and see if we could sort of humanize, you know, the experiences, the lived experiences of LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers. Because, you know, I think most Americans don't know this story. I certainly didn't. I couldn't have even told you the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker at that time. So the film takes place in San Francisco, mostly. Is that where a lot of the LGBTQ refugees go when they're seeking asylum in the United States because it's, the, the, the city is considered gay-friendly? Yes, and in fact, in 2013, the federal government for the first time gave a, a substantial grant to resettle queer refugees in the Bay Area uh, through that agency, Jewish Family and Community Services. So they were, this was a kind of first concerted effort. And then folks like Melanie Nathan here were already doing work um, on LGBTQ refugees in Africa. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, ma it made sense from the Obama administration's point of view. San Francisco is an immigrant-friendly city. Uh, of course, LGBTQ liberation history there. But, you know, the other piece of that is that the character of San Francisco has changed quite a bit. And, you know, trying to live on a refugee benefit of $350 a month in one of the most expensive cities in the world was, mm. you know, not something that anyone really had quite planned for. Come to New York. Um, so how did you find your subjects? Was it difficult to find people willing to have their stories told on film? Because even though they've made it to the United States, many of them still have families back home, families that might suffer if their stories are told. Yeah, this is a really sensitive issue and was is quite delicate. I mean, most LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers, when they're first getting here, one, they're dealing with a huge amount of trauma in, the, in their own sort of backstories. And then also they're in this very, very precarious transition in their lives where they're having to kind of start new lives and acculturate. You know, and right at that moment to go to them and say, hey, can we put a camera in front of your faces? And on top of it, would you tell us about these very difficult experiences? You know, it's, um, it, 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 it definitely was a delicate prospect. And that's why it was amazing to meet people like Melanie Nathan, who already um, had relationships with folks on the ground. And, of course, Cheyenne and, and her wife, Marie, you know, who were just, I think because they were performers and entertainers in, in their home country of Angola, they kind of understood film. And so we were able to have those conversations pretty quickly. And, and the trust developed over time. I mean, we, we spent, you know, four, four years filming. And that, I think, served the project well, just in terms of, of building trust. 
Melanie, you're described as a refugee and asylum advocate. What does your work entail? Thank you for that question. Um, well, um, I direct an organization now called the African Human Rights Coalition, and we work with LGBT refugees and asylum seekers. So, um, you know, the d descriptive given to me in the film was sort of more in my personal capacity and how my work was, was born was as an activist and an advocate. I entered the world of asylum seekers and refugees also through the door of equality and fighting for LGBT um, equal rights here in the United States and on the continent of Africa. And so it became um, a very um, uh, ex expected thing that I would find myself working with asylum seekers and refugees because over 30 countries in Africa criminalize LGBTI people. And so you have to have this migration thing going on for people who are under extreme persecution in their own countries. And there are many people in this situation and many of whom are unseen and unrecognized. So what the work entails is humanitarian efforts, safe shelter efforts. Um, often there's transportation efforts when people need to get out of a country urgently. Um, and then once people are say, a refugee in the UNHCR system, we continue our advocacy and we also continue to case manage on an ad hoc basis. And we continue through African Human Rights Coalition to provide um, safe shelter funding, funding for food, funding for medical needs and this kind of thing and small grants to people to help them establish livelihood projects to enable them to survive. So the, the nature of the work certainly runs the gamut. Mm. What you see in the film is um, the asylum-related part because it's happening here in the United States. So you don't see much of the refugee stuff that we do, but you definitely do get a sense of what goes on for asylum seekers here in um, the Bay Area. Now, Cheyenne, you're from Angola, and you came here with your girlfriend, Mary. Uh, what's the situation, Angola, in regard to LGBTQ rights? Is it illegal to be gay? Well, at that time, it uh, was definitely not legal, and you couldn't even talk about the subject. It's such a taboo, because uh, uh, the people in Angola in my country are very conservative, and especially in my family. So that was a very, very sensitive um, conversation and subject to even like mention so, that. So um, what happened? How did yeah. your family react when they learned that you were gay? Well, with my wife, Mari, uh, well, it was pretty obvious that she, she's gay because of her physical appearance. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no way she could actually hide it. Uh, now, in my position, uh, since I am more the feminine type, right, so I had a way of hiding for years. Uh, but when I came out to my parents, it was just, I don't know, a shock, I would say. Even though, um, you know, my parents used, uh, my dad especially, used to ask me why you don't have a boyfriend. And you would have thought that being a father, you don't really ask your daughter why you don't have a boyfriend, why you would be happy that your daughter don't have a boyfriend. But that was like a constant question that he would ask me. And uh, there was just a time that I, I came out to him and uh, in my family. And that was not taken in a good way. That's when I was kicked out of the house and uh, I had to move in with Mari and it all started from there. Now, there are other gay friendly countries throughout the world, most notably Portugal, which was the, uh, the country uh, that had Angola as a colony. Uh, what led you to decide to come to the United States? Uh, after all, Portugal has probably some of the strongest anti-discrimination laws in the world. Well, that is definitely a good question. Um, and uh, people do ask that a lot, like why people don't don't go like to other co countries. 
Uh, for some people, USA is really like the where they see themselves, right? Being free and having a stable life and all of that. And for, now that you mentioned Portugal, where I couldn't really go to Portugal, my family works for the president. So I'm very, very involved in the political uh, system. So we are like spread out for, to Brazil, Portugal. So if even if we move to Portugal, I wouldn't be, let's say, free or safe because I still have them over there and uh, I would still like have them come to my house and try to convert me and so to say uh, but definitely like USA was a country that we had in hand to um, to try and you know try and live a, a more stable life we also had Melanie here uh, which she has been a friend and like a supporter of throughout all the struggles that we've been going through before um, we even tried to go to South Africa. We tried to get like an asylum there, but uh, the office closed. So we had to go back to Angola hmm. and things were, things were not all, nothing got better when we went back to Angola. It just got worse. So but Cape uh, Town is a place that you could have gone? To another place. I'm sorry? Cape Town would have been safe for you. We actually Cape went Town, to Cape Town. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Noah. Yeah, Cape Town was where we first got them. And this is a part that you don't really see, you don't see in the film at all. There was an enormous right. amount of um, stuff going on before they made it to America. And let me say this. South Africa has an equal equality-based constitution. The new democracy, when um, Nelson Mandela became president, um, ensured in the constitution that a sexual orientation and gender identity would be included and certainly being LGBT was decriminalized but that does not make South Africa or any country that newly be decriminalizes like Angola for example very recently decriminalized so that doesn't mean that the country abracadabra is free mm. from extensive homophobia so when they went to Cape Town they still experienced it was very, very difficult. They still experienced enormous discrimination. They were not, they were well treated by a lot of people and not well treated by a lot of people. So it was definitely not a place where they could I mean, settle down easily. And also South Africa suffers from extreme xenophobia from anybody coming in from the north. And that's a concomitant of extreme unemployment that's been going on in the country. So are you generally in touch with asylum seekers before they try to make plans to come here? Are you able to get them visas to come here? Or is that something they have to arrange for themselves? And that's a really, really pertinent and good question. And thank you for asking that. Um, we are not in the business of getting people visas. That's not possible. And there's no such thing as an asylum visa. So that means that if you're going to come to America seeking asylum, you probably don't want to tell anybody that. And human rights organizations cannot get involved in um, assisting people openly or overtly to get to another country if they're going to put on the visa something like, oh, I'm, I'm only intending to come for a visit. Or, so the only way people can get a visa into the United States of America is not by saying, I want asylum, but by saying, I want to come there for a visit or I want to come there on a, on a business visa. And when you do that, you are in essence telling the embassy in your country that is granting you the visa. So you're telling the American embassy, for example, in Angola, that you definitely plan on returning home when you want to visit a visa. And this really creates a system that is not overtly honest or friendly to asylum seekers because there's no way someone can just say, I'm going to go to, I want to come to your country. And once I get there, I'm going to apply for asylum. So people hold that close to their vest and they will come into America as a student, as, um, as a uh, visitor. And then once they're here, they have one year to claim asylum and usually will then go to an attorney and do that. And that unfolds with the story of Cheyenne and Marie that people will see in the film if they tune in on Sunday night. Oh, I'm um, sure they will. But, they, but yeah. they have to apply for asylum to the Department of Homeland Security, um, once they which is a troubled department. 
Well, right now, you're absolutely right. Right now, this administration, the Trump administration, is extremely unfriendly to asylum seekers and refugees. And this is certainly not a time that we're comfortable advocating for more progressive ways for people to come to this country. But we're waiting and hoping that people vote blue and that we are then able to change the asylum laws for the better so that um, we can be more helpful to people who find themselves in situations like Marie and Cheyenne. Now, Cheyenne, does the UN help LGBTQ people who are being persecuted come to the United States or other countries? And is there a program in the United States that might grant temporary refugee status on the basis of, of sexual orientation? Are you, uh, do you mean in my country? If you want to no. help people no, in my does country? The UN, do you, can you go to the UN or do you just have to go, try to come straight to the United States? And well, if you, you do you, come you to have, the United States, do you, is, is there any kind of program that grants no, temporary refugee status? No, 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 no. What people need to understand is that Mari and I are asylum seekers. We are not refugees. So being an asylum, oh, I believe, we don't have any help from the government. We are basically on our own. So we make things happen on our own. There's no such thing as an organization. There's no such thing as help from the government. You come here, you figure out your things on your own with the little money that you brought with you, and that's how you're going to make it happen. So we were very uh, lucky and blessed to have Melanie, uh, Tom, and other um, friends, people that we met helping us. Other than that, we are really on our own. So that's different comparing to uh, Subi and Junior. They come here with already help from the government or like organization. And we'll get to Subi and Junior in just a moment. I want to alert our audience to the fact that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guests are uh, Tom Shepard, Melanie Nathan, and Cheyenne Adriano. We're talking about a film called Unsettled, Seeking Refugee, Refuge in America that will be broadcast this Sunday on worldchannel.org and then uh, will be available on World Channel and then be available on worldchannel.org from the 28th that this Sunday through the 12th. Is there any, um, is being gay in a place that where it's illegal considered sufficient grounds for asylum? Or do you, do you have to show that, uh, do people have to show that their lives are in danger, Melanie? Um, well, um, let, let me just quickly add to the last question. When uh, Cheyenne correctly made the distinction between asylum seekers and refugees, and you asked mm -hmm. the question about the UN, the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, is the UN organization based in Geneva, that helps to resettle people. So if you're a refugee and you cross over from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, say, into Kenya, you can go to UNHCR and you can say, register me with the Kenyan government as a refugee and then please resettle me abroad. And it's that system that Junior came in and Subi came in through that system. And that's how they became refugees. So that is how the UN is involved. Just to go back to that question. As far as your question's concerned regarding do you just have to be gay, you have to show that you have a credible fear in, of return to your country. So while LGBTQI, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, intersex or people who identify generally as queer, they are recognized as a social group um, that could feasibly have credible fear. But when you come to America and you go in and request asylum, you have to prove that you're LGBT, which is often taken at face value or not. You have to show your credibility, and you also have to show that you have a credible fear of returning to your country. And that's a very big law case for a lawyer mm. to get involved in and make out, which you do see in the film. And what then happens is they hire or, 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 or ask people to come and testify as country conditions experts. And that's something that I do. So I testify in the United States courts and globally as a country conditions expert for several African countries where I go and I explain to a judge why this person has a credible fear. Now, Cheyenne, you describe an incident in which Mari's mother 
tried to poison the the two of you because you were living together in a romantic relationship? Um, yes, that that in fact happened, uh, but I prefer not to. Well, not just to let me do this with this question. I'm sorry about that. Just, well, just, just let me do one follow up, yeah. which is not the personal side. Yeah. If she had succeeded in killing yeah. you, would she have been arrested, or would her actions have been seen as justified according to the laws of Angola at the time? That is definitely a good question. Thank you for that. Well, at that time, I believe that she would probably like go, you know, not be really. Um, how do you say this? Uh, not be condemned for her actions because she wow. probably like saved right saved the society from having another lesbian or gay people. So I believe she she would be let's say okay at that time. <laughs> Tom, your your film also shows several volunteer hosts and sponsors who work with the the refugees when they arrive, putting them up in their homes or helping them find other accommodations. Is that an organized effort? Are there religious groups that are working with LGBT uh, refugees? Yeah, that that infrastructure was just starting to build up when we started filming in late 2014. And it sort of points to one of the kind of heartbreaking issues in this story, Leonard, which is, you know, that... Most of the refugee resettlement model in this country going back decades and decades, and there is a rich history of that in this country, but it's always been sort of predicated on families, right? So a family might flee a war-torn zone of Syria or Iraq, and if they come to the Bay Area where Melanie and I live, now they'll often connect with one of these refugee resettlement groups like Jewish Family and Community Services, and then they'll kind of connect to maybe it's a grocery store in the community or a mosque or a community center. I mean, it's, it's definitely not easy, but there are these sort of footholds in the community based on the kind of diaspora of your, of your family. LGBTQ refugees are not fleeing with their families in most cases. They're fleeing from their family. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a gay Iraqi guy and you get to San Francisco, quite possibly the last people that you want to see are other Iraqis because you fear that, mm-hmm. you know, the same sort of harassment and vitriol that you experienced back in Iraq. So, you know, what, <clears throat> what we found is that LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers are really at higher risk for isolation, for depression, for kind of more internal displacement when they get here. And so then the question is, who's going to step forward? And folks like Melanie and the Unitarians and uh, the Jewish Family and Community Services were trying to sort of fill that gap through volunteerism. And, and you kind of see that grow over time. The, the, the sad irony is that in 2016, when Donald Trump won the presidency, even though these kind of infrastructures had matured, he, he cut the number of refugees allowed into the country down to a trickle. So now the, the resources are there, but we don't see the refugees. And now the Supreme Court has allowed him to cut it even more. So that's going to be, uh, and, I guess, and, the subject of your second film on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> now, now Cheyenne, Cheyenne, you said that you weren't allowed to work for the first six months when you arrived. Is that one of the requirements for asylum? And, and how, do, how do you survive if you can't work? Good question. That that's one of the requirements. Yeah, you're not allowed to to work. Um, so we. I imagine to, some people work illegally. Like, right. We we had to work under the table. Uh, that's mm. what, what was happening, and uh, it was definitely um, like a very concerning thing that we thing that we were doing because if we got caught, we would like have the risk or have the risk of. Uh, being deported, right? But again, uh, I think people don't realize, okay, you're going to stay like six months without working. How are you going to sustain yourself? How are you going to eat? So we had to do something. And we are kind of, uh, Mari and I, we the type of woman that we don't like to depend on anyone. And uh, we like to have our own money. So we had to do something to put like food on our table and all of that. And again, we did have help like from people that we met. And that's how we survived for all those months. Even though the city is welcoming to LGBTQ people, was there still a sense of culture shock? Or do you think that it was easier for you because you had each other? It might be more difficult for people who come alone. Uh, culture shock, I think we had more when, uh, like the way uh, Americans actually, actually treat each other. There's not really a, a sense of 
community, let's say like in the LGBT community, right? You would have think that that's where we would feel more safe and we would have more support, but it was totally the contrary. Like uh, we actually suffered like racism and xenophobia in the LGBT community. So that was really something that kind of made us like look at each other and like, oh, okay, so this is how things work here. And uh, being in San Francisco, which is like it should be a more, um, you have like the image of San Francisco being like these community, like people helping each other and all of that, but it was totally the contrary. And, uh, uh, like, for example, for Junior, he's a black man, he's gay. It's so hard for him, like, even to, to make friends, especially in the LGBT community. So that's something that still today we, we experience that, like, throughout the, the states that we live in. And it's, it's very, I don't know, it's very disturbing because that's not what we used to hear about, like, when you are outside the U.S. We're going to get to the stories of Junior and Subi in a little while, but Tom, you have scenes of Cheyenne and Mari being coached by their attorney, but not of the asylum hearing itself. Uh, were you not allowed to film the hearing? That's correct. Um, my co-producer Jen Gilliman and I and our colleagues at the Independent Television Service, which is you know the non-fiction funder of PBS, we. We tried really hard to get Homeland Security to, to grant an interview. They gave us some background, very sort of superficial background information about the asylum process. But, um, and you know, their their argument was that having a camera crew could very well affect the outcome and impact the, the asylum interview itself. So, so um, by that time, we'd spent three three and a half years with Shine and Marie. So we felt almost like family. And of course we would have loved to have been part of that, but of course we respected and we got them going into the building and then we got them coming out and then we got them on the day that they got their decision. Um, yeah. Now Melanie, what percentage of asylum seekers applications are approved? And what happens to them if their um, application is denied? That's really a good question too. Um, you know, I try to I'm ask finding, good questions. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm liking your question. Once in a while, I do. You really, you, you're hitting it on the nose here. Um, you know, um, I'll, I can only speak to what I know because there's no central database that says, you know, this week the entire United States of America approved 50 cases. So I can only speak for myself. And I work very extensively in the Africa region. And in the Africa region, um, every single one of my cases that I have provided expert testimony on has won the asylum. We have not had a single rejection. Um, and those cases, I would say, for me personally, where I was an expert witness in the last two years, has maybe been about 24 cases. Now, you have to hear this part. I'm not talking about LGBT people from Latin countries or from the Middle East. And I wouldn't know what those numbers are. And um, I have seen people, um, I've heard of people being turned back. I think people are being turned back in the asylum process more from the UK and more from Europe where things are done a little differently than here. Now, you also have to remember that there's so many different ways that people arrive here. You can be an affirmative asylum seeker, which is what Marie and Cheyenne were, which means if you arrive at JFK, for example, and you uh, enter the New York community, and it's that jurisdiction there that where your immigration application will be processed. And if you land up in the court system and not getting immediately approved, that's where your case will be heard. Um, if you come to the southern border, um, and we have had, for example, we had a young lesbian aged 24, fourth grade education, no English speaking, no Spanish speaking, so desperate to get out of her violent situation. She managed, she could not get a visa to the United States. So she managed to get to Brazil and she did not, was not able to stay in Brazil. She made her way up on her own through the, con through the continents, traveling and made it to the southern border 
where Trump is turning people away right now because and he's blaming turning them away on COVID. And actually, one of those cases just got um, he, he was not allowed to deport uh, a recent asylum seeker um, who was not LGBT, but who was happened to be a Guatemalan uh, young teen. But um, this young lesbian arrives. She then gets declares herself at the border and says, I'm running away from my country because I'm gay. I need asylum. And the uh, border patrol has to take her in. They have to take down her story. They have to take her case. And she is then known as a defensive application, unlike Marie and Cheyenne, who waited until they were already in community to file because they had a valid visa to get in. But this young woman did not have a valid visa to get in. So she had to declare herself. And she, like other people who declare themselves, then get detained. Some of them stay in detention for over a year before wow. their cases are heard. And we've got many of those cases right now. We have trans people, we have LGBT people in detention all across the United States mm-hmm. right now. They can might often they, get transferred. Mm. Might they be deported Sorry. back to the home countries where they face discrimination and even death threats? Well, in the LGBT cases, they are being well heard. We are being heard, and we don't know who's not being heard, and we're not hearing about those who are being deported. But we have an enormous amount right now of lawyers willing to be pro bono and immigration clinics across the country, all over, and even top-notch law firms willing to take these cases and um, and notch it up to their pro bono um, program for the year. And many law firms have those programs, which are wonderful. Do you remember that when Trump shut down the border on the um, uh, his first executive order, when he shut down the border suddenly, and there were people traveling into the United States that were suddenly faced at the airport with these huge crowds of American protesters who turned up at the airport. There was a Facebook page called Lawyers for Good Government that started, and within 48 hours, over 200,000 American lawyers had signed up to offer pro bono services. Wow. So, yeah, so this is just extraordinary how the lawyers in this country have come forward. So to answer your question more specifically, there is a lot of lawyering available to people who are in detention. It's just that it takes long to connect people. And it's hard for people to survive in or out of detention while everything is being put together for them to enable us to um, proceed with their cases, you know. So um, a lot of people are in our asylum system, whether affirmative or defensive, and a lot of cases are being heard, and a lot of people are able to stay in the country for the most part. I have to take a little break. Mm -hmm. Stay with us. This is Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Before we get back to this discussion about the upcoming PBS documentary, Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet because the pandemic has decimated some of of our funding sources. And and by sources of funding, I mean people like you, our, our WBAI listeners, because many of our longtime supporters have been forced economically to pull their support for the station. And that's why we need everyone who tunes into London Lopez at Large and is able to donate to step up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, that's give, and then the number two, WBAI.org, or by calling to a 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two. That's five one six six twenty thirty six zero two to help keep the show and the station on the air. Again, 
to make a contribution of any amount to help keep Community Radio and London's Liberty Lodge on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please call 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, or whatever each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. And anyone who signs up right now to become a BAI buddy will be invited to join me and other listeners for one of several teleconference events that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. We already have a a lot of people who have joined and we only have a few more openings. And today is the last day that we can actually make this offer uh, for you to become a, uh, a part of this virtual dinner where you'll be able to ask me or any of your fellow listeners anything that you like. So time is running out. We hope that you will give us that call right now, 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to, number two, give to wbai.org. And a big thanks to everyone who has stepped up already or is doing so right now. Leonard Lopate at Large and WBAI are funded 100% by your generosity. So we hope you'll make that call at 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org right now. And uh, I'm returning now to my guests, Tom Shepard, director of a film called Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America, which will air on World Channel via PBS stations on June 28th. Uh, and also on worldchannel.org from the 28th, uh, this coming Sunday through the 12th. Also with us are um, Melanie Nathan and Cheyenne uh, Adriano. And uh, let's talk a bit about the other two subjects of the film. Uh, Subi, a gay man from Syria, and Junior, a non-gender conforming gay man from Congo. Uh, Tom, can you tell us a bit about their stories? Yeah, um, I met Subi Nahas, who is a gay man from Syria, and he fled his country um, in 2012 as the war was starting in Syria. There was a group of extremists that were organizing in his town, and he had heard rumors that they had kidnapped and killed gay men. And on top of Are we talking about Al-Qaeda or ISIS? It's uh, Al-Nusra Front, which is uh, Mm -hmm. affiliated with Al-Qaeda at the time. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Subi's father was well-connected to the Assad government, was a contractor, and I think between the sort of stress of the war and and his father's discomfort with Subi's sort of gentle mannerisms and um, things just sort of exploded, and there there was some violence in the family, and Subi um, made a decision that he had to leave. So he actually bribed a taxi driver mm-hmm. in Idlib, Syria, to drive him to the border of Lebanon and pretend that Subi was mute, that he couldn't speak. Subi was worried that <laughs> if there was any effeminacy in his voice, that he might be stopped at checkpoints. So he made it to Lebanon. He couldn't afford to stay in Lebanon, so he moved to Turkey. And that's where he applied for refugee status, as Melanie was describing through the United Nations Agency. He was then resettled in San Francisco. And, and you know, I started Skyping Subi when he was in Turkey and telling him about the project and what he wanted to get involved. And he said, yes, we were able to kind of start filming via Skype. What none of us expected is that, you know, four months later, after resettling in the Bay Area, he would be invited by then Ambassador Samantha Power, the U.S. Mm -hmm. ambassador to the United Nations at that time, to speak before the Security Council. And it was a sort of uh, historic first, the first time that an openly gay person had done that. So Subi went from being a refugee and escaping Syria in a taxi cab to speaking before some of the, you know, biggest leaders in the world and uh, quickly became kind of a poster boy, really, for refugee mm-hmm. rights. And, and he you also know, as served as Grand film, Marshal here in New York City at the, at the Gay Pride Parade in 2016. It was that year after uh, Subi uh, testified that he was asked to be the Grand Marshal. He also, uh, you know, testified before the Homeland Security 
um, group in, in Congress and the Senate. So very quickly, he went from a kind of strategy in his life, which had been to sort of be silent and kind of push it all down, to suddenly, you know, speaking on an international stage. And you sort of see both the kind of amazing impact of that, but also um, how hard it was for him to just try and create kind of a normal life. So, Has his high profile affected his family back in Syria? Because we see him helping his sister get out of, of Syria. That's right. And at the time that he testified, things got very tense with his family back in Syria. Um, his father passed away about three years ago. And I was just talking with Subi a couple days ago, and he told me that, you know, he was never able to sort of reconcile with his dad. I do believe that his relationships with his siblings and his mother have sort of softened a little bit since since Subi has been in the United States. And yes, you're, you're referring to um, a scene in the film in which uh, Subi's own sister, who has her own sort of refugee story that we don't cover, she asked, she didn't want to participate in the film, but allowed us to film a reunion um, moment, and she was able to resettle in Canada. Now, Junior seemed to have had a more difficult time of it. What was his life like in Congo before he left? Hmm. Well, you know, like all the people in our film, all the, all the refugees and asylum seekers are highly educated, and they had been going to college. Junior was no exception. He was studying law as an undergraduate, and he was in Kinshasa, and he came out and was even, you know, doing some activism work, you know, in, in Congo. Um, unfortunately, his mother was a kind of fundamentalist preacher, and he'd heard many messages coming out of her and her sort of colleagues and friends about sort of the sin of homosexuality, and he didn't feel safe. And so at that point, he fled to Cape Town, and he was ultimately able to get his refugee status, like Subi, through the United Nations, and then moved to San Francisco in, in 2014 and was, was resettled. And that's how I met Junior, was I was uh, doing volunteer work at the refugee organization. Well, but once he gets here, he winds up moving 10 times in his first year, and at one point stays in a homeless shelter. He works at menial jobs, and we see that he develops a, a drinking problem. Was he prepared for things to be so difficult? Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting thing, Leonard, is, you know, Melanie was talking about that there's a, a huge amount of legal resources, especially for asylum seekers. And in San Francisco, there's no dearth of kind of pro bono attorneys. But when people get here, they're often holding huge amounts of trauma and PTSD. And that certainly was the case with Junior. And I have to say, as a country, we've not done a great job of dealing with mm -hmm. that problem. And it sort of makes sense in the Bay Area that, yeah. you know, housing, some of the, you know, just survival resources were the things that topped the list. But I think if you let that go unchecked for too long, you're going to see people really, really struggle. And that was the case with Junior, as you said. Yeah. He moved 10 times in the first year that he was here. It's like, how including are you going to normalize moving, your life? Including briefly moving in with an older white man, a kind of sugar daddy, who kicked him out after a few months. I suspect that this is not uncommon as well. Has he been able to settle in? You know, he, I just, I, and I, Melanie knows Junior as well, so I'll, I'll let Melanie speak too, but I, you know, I've had a chance to speak with Junior in the last weeks, and he still really struggles. He, he was able to get a, a public housing assignment, and that has just ended, um, and so I think he's faced with another, you know, kind of decision of, you know, where am I going to live? Am I going to be able to stay in the Bay Area? Now, Cheyenne, how have things worked out for you and Mari? Um, how long have you been here now? Um, I believe we've been here for five years already. I mean, yeah. I believe so. Five years. Yeah. No. Please correct me, guys, if I'm wrong. I'm not doing numbers anymore. Uh, I believe five years. Yeah, five years. We moved from the Bay Area. Uh, we are currently living in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, we see in the film that you're musicians, but it's not easy to make a living from music. Have you been able to find work? Uh, you mean in the music, in the music yeah. industry? Well, it's definitely not easy. You put it that in a, in a very correct way. It's definitely not easy to work in music, um, especially. Well, we don't have a big Angolan. We don't have a big Angolan music scene in in the United States. 
So I'm going. I'm going to go back a little bit. So Mari and I were actually very successful in the music industry back in our country. Uh, so uh, it's very hard when you go into a foreign country and try to continue your um, your music career, right? Especially when you come here as, as an Azali and you have to first figure out that part of your journey in a new country, which is try to settle yourself, um, get uh, your legal papers uh, worked out and all of that. So it takes time. It takes years for that to um, to all get worked out, if that makes sense. So, and will um, you be able to apply for citizenship? Are... I'm sorry? Will you be able to apply for citizenship? We would be able to, to apply for that, but that costs money as well. And let me tell you that. So <laughs> when uh, you, you know, we're going to have to save up for that as well, uh, of course. Uh, so recently um, I have released a song, um, which has been there. It's actually on all platform, platforms. Sorry. Um, so we are like kind of like slowly picking up from where we stop in, when it comes to music. Uh, but again, you have to kind of balance with the work life, the same bills, and uh, you know that takes away the money that you sometimes have to save up um, to, for the music. For example, I put out uh, GoFundMe, and I had am amazing people. Like people are really helping out and donating, and I feel so blessed that there's still people with good hearts out there and believing me. However, um, that money, I actually have to take part of that money to pay the bills because I'm in currently with no job because of the COVID, right? A lot of people are being left mm -hmm. from the company. So you see how it works? You save money for the music, but then something's going to happen in life because, of course, <laughs> it's life. You're going to have to take some of that money to actually, so, so that you don't become homeless anymore. You know, again, let's say like that. So well, it's now really that... like, it's a struggle today. It's a continuous struggle. It's a continuous struggle. Now that the laws have changed in Angola, do you think you'll ever be able to go back even to visit? Uh, just like Melanie said before, right, just because they discriminalize uh, being, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, um, how do you say, I'm sorry, how uh, to not discriminalize, uh, discriminalize gay people, right? It doesn't mean that you are now free to walk on the street and claim that you're gay, or if you're a gay mm -hmm. man, you can walk on the street in a certain way. That's not how it works in my country. I was born there. I know how things work. We are still have we still have gay people being attacked. That is just something that is not shown on TV, because my country has that way, a good way of putting everything under the carpet. So just because they put that out there, it doesn't mean mm. that things change. So it's not it's definitely not safe for Mari and I to go back to the country. And if we dare to leave the United States with this president that we have now, we might not be allowed to come back to the US oh. to the US. So we we rather just, you know, sit this one out for now. Melanie, in the film, we see a clip of, of Donald Trump before the election saying that if he wins, Syrian refugees will all have to leave. What's happened? Yep. Well, um, he's been an absolute nightmare in this realm, a, a cruel nightmare. He has hurt so many people and so many families with his policies. You know, we used to have uh, Congress determines the number and then the president signs off on how many refugees we will admit into the country. And we were at, I think, during the Obama era, around 136 to 145,000 refugees coming in. Right now with Trump, we're down to 18,000. And even in the Obama era, we could have taken many more and we can still take more. Um, if you look at the size of our country, if you look at the amazing work that most immigrants are able and do achieve and do, um, you will see that the contributions of refugees are humongous. And we can take in more. We have not been. And then, of course, we have the COVID scenario right now, which has placed us in um, quite an invidious position with regard to asylum seekers and refugees being able to even just make it to the country at this time. So everything's pretty much shut down for the most part right and now. Then, and um, then this week, the Supreme hmm. Court, including some of its the liberal Justices ruled that immigrants whose requests for asylum have been rejected may not contest the denials in federal court. So that's um, going to have a real effect. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I haven't uh, seen that yet. So I haven't, you know, really looked at that. 
but um, there, for the most part, um, you know, there was a, the, the, the other Supreme Court um, uh, uh, ruling that, or no, it was a federal court ruling that um, he couldn't deport people um, who were coming in just on the basis of the public health law. He was trying to invoke um, COVID as a mechanism for not allowing asylum seekers in, which he's now, and, and actually deporting them, and he can't do that um, currently. But um, the, the, the point is that, he, he, look, he's anti-immigrant generally, especially immigrants of color. He's anti-asylum. Um, uh, he's anti-refugee. He doesn't understand or, or chooses not to notice what immigrants actually do in this country. And... Um, so he's doing everything in his power whenever he gets the opportunity to shut those doors and to close that pipeline. Um, my hope is that this changes. We, we've got to change it. We have an important standing in the world, and we need to honor our international contracts and treaties, and we need to not do what Donald Trump is doing to this country right now. Now, we're pretty much out of time, but Tom... Uh, I assume that you're hoping that your film will affect how people see these refugees. I think so. You know, I think people have read a lot of news over the last decade about the Syrian refugee crisis, and they kind of hear reports about the migration crisis in general. But how many people actually really know asylum seekers or refugees? And and my hope is that, you know, by kind of humanizing those stories, even if you haven't, you feel like you have by the end. Um, we well, we there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in this mm -hmm. country who are the children or grandchildren of people who came here seeking asylum from other countries, uh, especially during World but War. You know, the country, years leading up to World War Two. I'm so sorry. So no, I think that's right. Has been built in with like has been built on um, foreigners back. I mean, this country was actually stolen from people of color, right? So yes. uh, I think Americans have to realize like this thing of racism, uh, racism and being divided, it really doesn't make sense. We are all in a country where it actually has been built by foreigners. We are all here and we all have come from somewhere. Yeah. Our I, I have to leave have it. From somewhere else. I have to leave it there. Thank you all so much, Tom Shepard, Melanie Nathan, Cheyenne Adriano. The film Unsettled Seeking Refugee in America will air on World Channel via local PBS stations on this Sunday and on worldchannel.org from Sunday through July 12th. So that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who produced today's interview. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopatatlarge.com. Don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to comment on this or any of our shows, you can write to me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take one last moment to ask for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep the station alive. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now, this is your last chance uh, by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of the show. Uh, you can join me and some fellow listeners at special teleconference events that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. But today, as I said, today's the last time we're making this offer, so you have to sign up to become a BAI buddy right now in order to be invited to the teleconference. Please support this unique, in-depth content that we bring you on this show, and be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you for keeping the show and all the great programming on WBAI coming to you. Uh, join us again on Monday when I'll be talking to the author of White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. See you then.